Welcome to Footy for Two. I'm Solomon Dubner. I'm Stephen Dubner. Solomon, where are we? I don't know. Where do you, where do you think we are? <laughs> I want to know if you know. We're in, we're in a pub in Paris. Oh, good. You didn't drink too much in the match last night. Just having watched uh, Sweden, Italy, uh, which we're going to talk about now with a, a friend and very special guest. Simon Cooper. Who is a journalist, longtime football journalist, and we'll let you describe the, the rest of your work, Simon. Uh, but most well-known in our quadrants for as a, a co-author of the wonderful book Soccernomics, which was... And Soccerman. Do you write that by yourself? Uh, I wrote Soccerman by myself, yeah. My, my dad used to help me a bit, but now I write by myself. <laughs> Soccerman was a collection of journalism you've published over the years profiling football players and managers and others, correct? That's right. It's a collection of my journalism, really. I'm trying to also write about individual players, but also who is today's soccer player. But my first book I'm most fondest of is called, in American, Soccer Against the Enemy. It came out more than 20 years ago. Describe Soccer Against the Enemy. Um, it was a crazy idea of going around the world, trying to write about what football means in the culture of different countries, you know, everywhere from Italy to Cameroon. Um, it was over-ambitious, but I did it. Solomon, uh, soccer nom- of all the football books you've read, uh, this might be a little embarrassing since Simon is sitting right by you, but how would you rate Soccernomics? I'd rate that in the top 20, but i put Soccer Men in the top three or top five. Interesting. So I, I loved Soccernomics. Am I allowed to say that? I can't stop you now, can I? <laughs> you you, you kind of just said it already, yeah. So I would just recommend Soccernomics. To anyone who's a fan of Freakonomics, I would certainly recommend Soccernomics because it looks at football or soccer in a way that is extremely fruitful and incisive and, and surprising. Also, I, I would rate it higher. I read it like two years ago when I, was, I didn't understand it as much. So, so you were just a child. I okay. was just a child. So I'd like to turn this episode primarily over then to uh, Simon having a chance to interview Simon. Would, would it be accurate to say that Simon is, uh, has had the kind of career that you would dream of having? I'd say so, yeah. All right, so why don't you um, ask him whatever you'd like, and hopefully you can learn something and along the way for your own uh, profit, and everyone listening can learn about uh, the world of Simon Cooper as well. All right, great. So before we start, Simon, thank you for coming. What did you think of that match you just watched? Uh, I didn't watch much of it. I've become less and less of a soccer fan, so we just were sitting here through Italy, Sweden, and I noticed you were watching it, Solomon, but I was mostly enjoying the conversation. Um... Do you get excited at all when Eder scored the great winner in the 87th or not really? There's a tiny bit of a soccer fan left inside me and that, you know, kind of tiny vestige got quite excited when he scored a brilliant goal, yeah. But most of me just, you know, no, I didn't care. <laughs> okay. So I know you've interviewed a lot of players, obviously, if everyone knows if you've been a soccer man, but who do you say is the most interesting player you've ever interviewed? It's a really good question. I mean, the most intelligent, intellectual footballer I've ever met by a large distance is Lilian Thuram, who was France's right back in 1998. He's France's record international. I mean, the guy has a football career, you you know, beyond compare almost. But he's also now become a, a French intellectual. He's a campaigner against racism. He's a thinker against racism. He curated a wonderful exhibition on the idea of the savage in the Musée de l'Homme. I mean, it's almost like a parody of a French intellectual in a Woody Allen film. But he's, <laughs> he's really serious. He's read his thoughts. He's a wonderful conversationalist. He's a really nice man. I've interviewed him various times, and I'm hugely impressed. Frank Reichard, the great Holland player and Holland coach, is a 
um, a wonderfully calm and reflective man with a psychological take on fellow players and fellow coaches, great storyteller. And most recently, Fernando Torres, who I interviewed uh, when I went to Atletico, I did a story on them. I only had 20 minutes with Torres, and I just had the most cliched interview ever with Antoine Griezmann, the French player who, for some reason, obviously didn't want to say anything. So he just said, yeah, we do our best. We hope we win on Saturday. And then Torres came, and we only had 20 minutes because his wife had just given birth. So it was amazing he was there at all to come and see me. But he did, and in 20 minutes, I, you know, it was one of those conversations, one of those interviews you wish you could have had three hours. Yeah. All right, so that's pretty nice. Yeah, me and a lot of other people would not have expected Fernando Torres to be so interesting. <laughs> I don't know why, it's just one of those things. It's, it's partly what you ask players, and a lot of the fault of players being boring is the journalist's fault. Like if the journalist says, that was a great game, you must have been really happy you scored that brilliant goal, then the player says, yeah, yeah, I'm really happy. So what can you do? What can the player do? And the player doesn't want to say much because if he's honest, he risks getting into trouble with his coach or media story. But what Fernando Torres always is asked is, uh, so you were a fan of Atletico, you became a player, that's a real fairy tale, isn't it? You play for the club you support. Massive cliche story, and Torres, being an obliging guy, is happy to retell it. And so I said, look, I find with players you always have to have read the interviews they usually give and say, we're not going to do that, there's no point, because you've already said that. So I said to Torres, look, you always say you're, you were a fan, you became a player, but it's a totally different thing. A player is on the inside, he sees the dicey washing of the club, all love dies. That's what I notice with players and clubs. It becomes a professional relationship. Mm. So I said that to Torres and he said, yeah, it's a totally different feeling being a player, being a, being a fan. And he said, my main feeling as a former Atletico fan or as somebody who still loves Atletico in a way is, is of guilt and responsibility. So when we lose, I feel guilt and responsibility. And when I wanted to leave Atletico to go to Liverpool, I felt enormous guilt. And it was very difficult for me to tell people that and to be able to leave. And I was desperate that they did well without me. I really needed that to happen so that that guilt could be absolved. So it was just psychologically very sophisticated. Can I butt in and ask one question, Simon? So I'm curious if there's a parallel when you talk about players and the question that you asked Torres and his answer was, yes, all love dies. It, it, your relationship to the game changes. What about for you when you describe you're not really being such a fan of the game anymore? I assume you became a football writer in part because you love the game. But then once you do it professionally, can you talk just for a moment about what it's like for you to watch football as someone who writes about football all the time? And is there a sadness for you that you don't get so much joy as a fan anymore? Or have you transcended that? I mean, I still find football terrifically interesting. The, the quality is brilliant, the tactics, the psychology. I'm very interested. But what I noticed is that when you when you get behind the curtain, which as a journalist you do over time, and you see how players and managers think. I mean, a friend of mine said it happened for him when he was a journalist covering his favorite team, Sunderland. He was standing with the players in the tunnel before kickoff. And he looks at these players wearing the shirts of his beloved Sunderland, and he realized for them it is just a job. And football is often, they're very ambitious, they work very hard, sometimes they love football, but they never love the club. The relationship with the club is purely transactional both ways. Because if the player is bad, the club will get rid of him. And if the player is too good for the club, he will leave as well. So it's strictly business. So any love they feel, all ambition is personal. I want to do well. I want to win the Champions League. It's not, I want my club to win the Champions League. And if I, the player, am on the bench, I want my club to lose. Every player on the bench wants his club to lose. 
And so, because the player is fighting for his career, and most players, they're not quite good enough to coast. I mean, if you're Messi or if you're Rooney, football is fun. You know, you're the best player in the team. You can have a great time. If you're the guy marking Messi, football is not fun. You're, most players in a league like the Premier League or the Champions League or the Primera División in Spain, they're walking on tiptoe to survive at that level. Every year they play, they get another 2 million euros, whatever it is, and every year you can be cut. And so the player is in a state of anxiety, professional performance, his only peak earning years are now, and there is no love. It's just about your personal career. And when you experience that as a journalist, you become inured to that, and you start to also see football as this is a living. And I'm fascinated by football as a phenomenon, but most of the love I certainly grew up with and felt deeply has died. Would you say that you still like your job? I love writing about football. Do I love watching football? I mean, you know, I interviewed Johan Cruyff once, and he was the hero of my childhood. And he said, it costs me a lot of difficulty to watch a 90-minute match. And I, I feel the same way. It costs me a lot of difficulty to watch a 90-minute match. And we were just watching Italy-Sweden, five of us, good conversation, nice drink. It was great to watch as a journalist when you go alone to the stadium. I mean, I at halftime, I often think halfway through. <laughs> yeah. So... Obviously, like I said, you've interviewed many players. Who's, who would you say is the rudest one you've interviewed? Well, I mean, the most rudest com- confrontation I had was with Edgar Davids, Dutch player of the 90s. Cause I've heard he's very rude. Yeah, because he saw me and he said, you, you're badly dressed. And <laughs> Were you? Probably. And I said, we um, were speaking in Dutch, so I grew up in Holland. And I said, you cannot be serious. And he said in English, he broke into English, he said, damn, yes. And I realized he'd got his whole, you know, stick from NBA players. I later realized his whole influence was NBA, so he, he had copied this kind of NBA speech of the time. So that was pretty rude. And um, he was not an easy man, although, you know, later I interviewed him on the phone. We had quite a pleasant interaction. I think like most people, the thing about being a footballer is often you emerge on the scene between 18 and 24 and as we know most males are difficult not to say unbearable between ages 18 and 24 after that the hormones proceed and they become rather more pleasant so often the ex-player is a lot more pleasant than the player uh, what's your favorite league to watch entertainment wise tactic wise player wise coach wise <laughs> Gosh, I mean, of course, Spanish football is, is, is the best and most intelligent and sophisticated. I've never liked English football, but um, I grew up in Holland, so all love I still have is with Dutch football, and it's terrible, but I, you know, I, actually, I'm very interested in Dutch football until I actually see it and realize how bad it is. Would you say you still support a certain team or not really? And if you did, who would it be? I really do support Holland. I mean, what I'm saying to you about not really liking football, uh, when I support Holland, I'm mostly pretty into it. I, I, I do care. And any Dutch club playing in Europe, I'll, I'll feel for them. But, you know, I was. this is how the fan dies. I was at the World Cup final 2010, probably the only time in my life that I will see my team play a World Cup final. And my team, Holland, got within 15 minutes of penalties in the World Cup final. And I'd helped supply the penalty report on Spain that was going to win the final for them on a penalty shootout. So I was sitting in the stands, practically having a heart attack. This is all in Soconomics about the penalty report we, we did. And, um, and I'm thinking, I'm there as a fan. I'm there as the guy who helped arrange the penalty report. And I'm there as a journalist. And my newspaper, the Financial Times, is calling me and saying, 
can't you file something now? We passed deadline. And I'm saying, well, look, it's nil-nil in the World Cup final, so I can't really file a match report because you have to have a team win. And then Andres Iniesta scores for Spain. And instead of thinking, my life is over, my team has lost the World Cup final, I th my first thought was relief. I thought, Spain's won, now I can write the report. <laughs> um, so, obviously, you said you're still obviously interested in football. You have to be if you have your job. What would be your dream Champions League final? I know what mine would be. <laughs> What's yours? Take a guess. Barcelona, Real Madrid? Yep. <laughs> um, mine would probably be Ajax, PSV, Eindhoven, an all-Dutch <laughs> final. I know How far away are we from that? Well, in the 1970s, we were pretty close. Yeah, I mean, uh, the best teams in the world were Dutch. And, in fact, a bitterness of Feyenoord fans is that Johan Cruyff won the league for Ajax, I think, in 1970 with a contested penalty against Feyenoord. Otherwise, Feyenoord would have won the league. The next season, 1971, Ajax win the European Cup. They win three in a row. And Feyenoord fans say, if that penalty hadn't been given, we would have won the league and we would have won those three European Cups. Um, what, well, tactically, this is probably an easy question. You might have a different answer than me, Pep Guardiola. What coach would you say tactically is most interesting? Yeah, you're right, Guardiola. Yeah, Conte is very, but no one is close to Guardiola, right? Um, look, gosh knows about Conte. Um, I, mean, I think if I were the Juventus coach, I would have won the last five league titles as well. <laughs> so there's an enormous amount of... I think, in a sense, judging coaches on results and prizes is a bit limited because the players have a much bigger influence on performance than the coach does. What you can judge a coach on is his intellectual interest and Guardiola exactly. is very high. I mean, there's a great book, Pep Confidential. I shouldn't really be recommending other soccer books other than my own. I've read a little bit of that. It was decent. Uh, I would read the whole book by Marty Perrano because he spends time close up with Pep. Oh, that I, I was thinking about another one about no, yeah, the Bayern one. That I was thinking about another. One. I read the Bayern one. That was one of the best books I've ever read, along with Soccer Man. Pep Confidential. Yeah, I was thinking about another one by Miguel something, a Catalan writer. Uh, it was about his philosophy. It's it's Marti, the book I'm thinking of was by Marty Perrano, yeah, who was yeah the Bayern one. I remember that it was one of the best books. The I found one, the yeah. best I've ever read. Um. Out of every player you've watched, obviously, what, or right now in the game, who would you say is the most entertaining to watch, like get you off the edge of your seat? That's a really good question. I mean, the individual has been limited. Oh, sorry, it's an easy question. Messi. <laughs> I agree. <laughs> um, so we're at the Euros in France, so of course we have to talk about that. Who's your favorite player on the national team? For France, um, I think now, like most... French people, I'm not a French person, my children are French people for better or worse. I would say Payet. I mean, I hadn't really followed the guy much. And, um, you know, the guy comes into the national team and he barely played for France before and he scores in both the first two games. He's a wonderful dribbler. What I like about him is he's a player without pace. So he, he doesn't really have the option of just power and pace. So he's just a, he sees the game, he thinks every move, and he can execute technically. So the player without pace or, or uh, power like Zidane, has to be a cerebral and technically brilliant player. And Payet is a kind of... He, in a way, he's a more attacking version of Zidane. He's not Zidane, of course, nobody's Zidane. But he's, he's Zidane playing 20 metres further forward. Yeah, I, also, I know no one's messy besides Messi, but just the way he thinks and the way he moves, Payet gives me... A, like, there's like a small resemblance to Messi. Can you see what I mean there? Not really. Yeah, I don't think anyone could be compared to Messi. I don't think it's, you know... Um, but... Um, yeah, I mean, he has a bit of Messi's dribble. He has, a, he has a bit of Messi's precision. But, I mean, 
No one's messy. His free kicks are maybe a little better. The one he scored against, I think it was Palace, yeah. was unbelievable. Yeah, well, I mean, the free kick is the perfect position for a guy who has no power or pace because suddenly everyone is equal. Um, I, you see, I mean, just the whole concept of comparing a footballer to Messi strikes me as wrong. Yeah, <laughs> there's no one close. Um, who's your dark horse to win this tournament? Who do you think is the most overrated team in it? Dark horse. Um, I have four, so you can name more than one. Actually, I might have five at this point. Um, that's not fair, because, I mean, then you can say I've got 20 dark horses. And and like if anyone wins, then I'm right at yeah. this point. Yeah. Uh, I would say Croatia on my dark horse, because they really... I mean, they were a skillful side, but, I mean, what struck me in 98, you know, you had Holland and Croatia as two quite gifted small countries. But the Dutch didn't really want to win because we don't care about that, whereas the Croats really, really wanted to win. And so a combination of being having football now, skill, and you want to win is quite useful. Um, who's the most overrated team in this tournament? Um... I mean, maybe Belgium. I mean, everyone's saying Belgium now, so I'm loath to say that, but maybe Belgium. Yeah, like I was saying, I heard this on TV too. They have such great individual players, but no team or unity. Also, company not being there makes a huge difference, not just in how good they are defending, but the leadership, and he helps unite the whole team. But I also feel aggrieved because, you know, what? when I was a kid in Holland in the 80s, when Holland didn't qualify, which we didn't usually, everyone would support Belgium because Belgium are like the kind of little furry house pet. And um, and then, you know, 30 years on, first time in ages we don't qualify. And so, of course, I support Belgium, and uh, then the darn Belgians go and let me down. And I feel just very uh, aggrieved. I mean, the only time I need this country, they don't come through. <laughs> Who's going to win the Euros? One word, one word. France. And then you can elaborate. <laughs> France? Uh, France, yeah. Why? Why? Well... In Soconomics, we say that playing at home is worth 0.6 goals a game in international football. So you give a good team 0.6 goals and they win the Euros. Thank you, Simon. Wait, wait. Can I butt in for one more second? Um, I just wanted to say the, the fact that we're here in Paris, in France for the Euros, is all your fault. I don't know if you... Fall is not the word it is. <laughs> I don't know if you recognize that or not, but we, uh, you were good enough to um, come out to lunch with us, was it a, a year ago? Yeah, can I tell the story? Yeah, you can So we were talking about football, of course, and for a little while I'd been telling my dad, it's in France, should you go to the Euros? And he said, yeah, maybe, I don't know. He didn't, I didn't I don't really know what the Euros were. To be and then, without bringing up Simon said during lunch, you guys should, go to, should come here for the Euros, so thank you very much for that. Oh, I didn't realize I played any role because I got the sense that you guys were soccer Nazi who would go to any half-bit half tournament. I am. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, I realize, I mean, I really admire your dad because I can see he really has very little interest in soccer. Uh, Do, is that true? Is that true? <laughs> no, I, uh, well, to be honest, uh, because I'm uh, a rudimentary fan, I mean, I know the game. I've known it since I was a kid, but I but it really remains a foreign language to me because for fans, you've been following it for many years, Solomon for several years now, and it's like anything. When you have a history with something, everything means more, yeah. right? Yeah. But you're learning it very well. Uh, well, I'm learning it. So like for Barca, because I've watched probably, I don't know, 30 or 40 Barca matches in the last two seasons, now when I watch more. them, 
those games are meaningful because I know the players, I know the relationships, I know the history with different teams. But when I'm watching uh, a match with you guys, I'm a total, total novice. Um, so I, I enjoy it very much. But yeah. uh, So I, I wouldn't say I don't enjoy it. I just have uh, a, a, a much shallower level of engagement and appreciation. So... That, so I think that, you're making me sound like a better father than I am because it's not like it's torture for me, um, but it, it's definitely Solomon's uh, appreciation for it is at an entirely different level. Yeah. All right, thank you very much, Simon. We'll probably see you again soon, and have a good rest of the Euros. You guys too.